Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. My name is Andrew Harris, and I am looking at the man, the myth, the legend, dun, dun, Winston uh, the Don. I mean, uh, oh, <laughs> Andrew Decker. How are you, sir? Wow, um, I'm humbled now. You are, yeah. Winston, Winston, man. <laughs> Winston got the the shout out he's asleep on your lap and he'll start snoring here we'll I've have to edit research that out for this show yeah <laughs> i provided you with cases to read i've read stuff yep and i got winston the dog is is ahead here. of you yes um not true you know as far as humans go you're pretty all right uh so i'm a human yeah what a what a weird way to start the show thanks um <laughs> so you're Andrew, luck, you're, lucky, you're lucky I don't carry a gun. My God, my, my goodness, man! But that's a great segue because that's what we're talking about today. Uh, thankfully, uh, you know when we're recording these, there are no firearms present um, right. in the vicinity, maybe, but there are no firearms I present. Be very clear, I've never, ever, ever thought Andrew's got to die. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, yeah, that's there's sweet, a Dixie, man. There's a Dixie Chick song. Er, isn't it Earl's Gotta Die? Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You, Classic. Yeah, I wouldn't write that song about you. My gosh. Um, we are talking guns today. Guns. It is uh it's kind of a culturally relevant time for this, right? Well, we're in Texas. It's always culturally relevant yeah. to talk about guns. Uh and you know, we're we're seeing a lot of uh of cases being filed in the um, you know, in the in the federal courts. Um, and I think those are going to move down to, uh, um, state level, the state level. Yeah. Right. Relatively soon. Right. And, and, uh, just arguing that some of these state regulations are unconstitutional and we'll kind of get into like, you know, the, just the general, uh, premise for, uh, you know, what, what the, what the basis is for the, um, for, for ask for these to be held on un- unconstitutional, if I can struggle through that. And then kind of where we're headed now, what the current state of the law is now. Um, and, you know, Andrew and I, like any normal Texan, um, we are opinionated as all hell. That's not really what this podcast, uh, what this episode is about. Um, so we're going to try to avoid uh, much political comment. Right. Um, but we are going to talk about some changes. One actual change to the law in Texas. And then what we think these cases, these federal cases might mean, um, well, what they do mean federally and in New York uh, specifically in one case, uh, but what they might mean for our clients even here in Texas. Right on. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so let's start with the with the uh, lovely Texas Penal Code, Chapter 46, Weapons. Fantastic. Uh, th- this, is, this is truly just a change in the law. Uh, I learned about it um, a few weeks ago. When I was in a county attorney's office and went in, a couple of the the eighty uh, the assistant county attorneys were talking. I know them both, and I you know I just was sticking my head and I was going to go. Well, I'm glad y'all are working hard, kind of just messing with them, yeah, right, just messing with them. And one of them asked me, Andrew, and I'm going to let you play this part because we've talked about it a little bit. Sure, uh, unlawful possession of a, unlawful carrying of a weapon. What what's the basic rule? You know, hey, you're carrying a weapon in the commission of committing some other offense. Uh, we see it a lot with like DWIs. Right. UCWs. Greater than a traffic ticket. Right. Greater than a traffic right. ticket. Correct. So possession of marijuana. Yeah. Public yes. intox. Correct. Um, 
So they were looking at a case that recently came into their office, theft at Walmart, and the guy had a gun in his belt. Interesting. Right? And I was like... Shoplifting. Shoplifting. Okay. Shoplifting. Uh, He doesn't display the firearm. He doesn't use the firearm. It just happens to be on his person. And he walks in, grabs some stuff from Walmart, and heads through the door like many many of our clients do. Right. Um, I don't know how Walmart stays in business. Um, (laughs) uh, It's why I don't shop at Walmart. Well, Uh, yeah, it's one of the most highly surveilled places in uh, in America. Sweet baby Jesus. There are more cameras in Walmart than there are people. Um, But I was like, well, that's unlawful carrying of a weapon. And both of these uh, assistant county attorneys said, that's what we thought. And then the elected county attorney walks in at at, at this point the four of us have this discussion and are all shocked to learn basically that 4602 changed. You know, I'm I'm just really shocked to learn and hear that you were able to talk with three assistant county attorneys at the same time in the same room. That's crazy to me. Well, and, and that I, I I felt like that I was uh, a respected colleague. Okay. Right? That's even better, right? And I respected the three of them. Yeah, um, yeah. No, they are. Uh, uh, but it changed. It's no longer just this, you have a weapon while in commission of, of a felony. So we're looking at, truly, this is 4602. You can look it up in your in your, in your your own penal code at home. Um, but a person commits an offense if the person intentionally or knowingly recklessly carries on or about his person a handgun at the time of the offense. That's what we always know. And is younger than 21 years of age or has been convicted of something that would make it where they can't... Uh, carry the weapon and they're not on their own premise or premises under their personal control or in route directly to their vehicle or from their vehicle to the place of their control. All right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So have to be, um, have to be over the age of 21, not have any, no younger, younger than 21. That are, a person commits an offense if at the time of the offense they are younger than 21. Right. So it's okay if they're over 21. Mm-hmm. They can't have been convicted of anything else and they're not on their own premises or any other premises under their control and also not inside a vehicle, motor vehicle or watercraft owned by the person or under the person's control. Okay. Right. Kind of wordy, but uh-huh. yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm on the same page. But then the person commits an offense if the person intentionally, nowhere, recklessly carries it on about his person a handgun in a motor vehicle or watercraft, and we're just going to say vehicle because it includes both of them every time, Right, is owned by the person in which the person has control at the time in which the handgun is in plain view. Right. Okay. Unless the person is 21 years of age or older and issued a handgun li- a, a, a license to carry a handgun under subchapter uh, H chapter 411 of the government code and the gun is carried in a holster okay so in that it's you don't commit an offense unless the handgun is in plain view or it can be holstered on your side so long as you're licensed right and you're 21 or older or you're engaged in criminal activity greater than a class c misdemeanor uh or you're right. prohib- but basically you've got it's got to be if you're over 21 you've got to be in your car 
and not have a license and the gun has to be in plain view. Right. Yeah. Well, that takes several of the cases that you and I have um, seen and probably worked on. I know I've worked on a few of them where the person had a gun in the truck, but it was like in the, the glove box or in the center console. Well, that's not in plain view. Yeah, it, I'm still so, kind of confused though because it's because there's an or after number one. So if a person under A1, a person commits an offense if the person intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly carries on or about their person in a vehicle that is owned by them or under their control, in which Subparagraph two, the person is engaged in criminal activity other than a class C misdemeanor that is a violation of law or ordinance regulating traffic or boating. Right. So maybe like a DWI with a gun, but you've got to be in the car. So again, the theft at Walmart right. is not an unlawful carrying of weapon and it's not a robbery because he didn't use the gun in the commission of the theft and it wasn't in plain view. Well, no, or, he's not, or, or, he's or not in his, right. He's not in his vehicle. Right. It, it's yeah. it, it, it's like this. So the commission, the crime has to be in your vehicle. So it just becomes really weird. So the, so truly the county attorney's office trying to figure out how to get a, and they were like, we, it, it's, you're going to want to look at your cases. You're going to want to look at the it's facts. It's not a, it's not a slam dunk, like hard and fast. You got a gun with you and a DWI. You're, it's going to be a DWI UCW. Now it's more like, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Well, more, <laughs> more the, um, uh, one of the first ones these I had was a unlawful carrying of a weapon because of a PI. A poly- yeah. Right. Right. Well, the person wasn't in control of the vehicle. So they weren't in control. And also they're not engaged in criminal activity higher than a class C misdemeanor because the, Public intoxication does not is not a law or ordinance regulating traffic or boating. Other than a class C misdemeanor that is a violation of law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, so the person is engaged in criminal other than so you can be so it's illegal to engage in criminal activity unless it's a class C misdemeanor. Well, but it's still you got to be in your boat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's or true. your motor vehicle. Right. Oh, gosh. So Truly, if you get an unlawful carrying of a weapon, you're gonna want to look at the facts and do the whole lay it, lay the, do the. Can they meet all the elements? And it's one of those where the ifs and ands or ors. Uh, the four of us stood around in that office, and I was like, I'm gonna have to go look at it myself. Um, I have, and I would have to have a have a real good set of facts and sit down and look at it together. Brothers and sisters, you're gonna want to look at that one. Yeah, I mean, you know, even as Andrew and I, because we, you know, we talk a lot about these uh, episodes prior to recording, but, you know, we haven't, we don't really fully digest and obviously hadn't fully digested this one outside of recording. Well, you were eating so, lunch when we talked, so you were digesting other things. <laughs> it is, uh, it, it is, it is rather wordy. Um, there's a lot of subparagraphs, so it is going to be something you're going to want to sit at. It is not, uh, sit down with and, and digest. It is not a um it is not as easy as the old rule was right yeah so um it's interesting i think how every you know our 
governments are are turning towards um you know reading uh, a a strict reading of the second amendment right um to especially those last couple words that says uh, shall not be infringed um and that brings us kind of to our like next case this is kind of the what the basis the foundation of the recent uh challenges to some to some gun regulations right yes yes and we're the the case is the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Inc versus Bruin um you know it's kind of a wordy uh wordy title there but it was really a landmark case a couple of years ago or right. at least last term yes yeah it, it's it it is well it it starts affecting other things down the road already Certainly. and so we're going to let Mr. Harris tell us a little bit about the uh New York rifle and gun a rifle and pistol because then I'm going to talk about a case out of the Fifth Circuit uh, that follows up un- after after this. So, you know, the before we start and get into this immediate case, it kind of builds off of another Second Amendment case that was that was a landmark case, the D.C. District of Columbia versus Heller, um, which stated uh, that United States citizens do have an individual right unconnected to a militia to possess guns within their own homes under the second amendment. And what this case now says the New York state rifle and pistol association versus Bruin says is you have a right to possess a firearm in public uh, is generally what it is. Now it's really interesting because the, there was a, a, this is out of New York. So there's a law on the books in New York back in 1911 uh, called the Sullivan Act, which says so this is this is not a new law. This is no, not something that just recently got passed. No, 110 or 11 years old. Okay, um, as of, as of 2022, when this um, when it was, uh, you know, this lawsuit was filed, um, the state law required applicants for a license to carry a concealed pes- pistol on their person to show quote unquote proper cause or a special need distinguishable from that of the general public in their application. So a special need other than uh, self-defense as a special, you know, as a, for, to show proper cause. Or that, or that you might have a special need for a self-defense uh, because if. Right. The, the, the you, person who's like brought this suit, right. Had just been a victim of. Some well, kind I'm, of I'm crime. saying in 1911, it would oh. just be like, Hey, you know, I feel like I need a gun for self-defense. It would be like, I have a specific need. I carry a large amount of cash with my business. Um, I work security for, uh, for the mayor. I'm yeah. not law enforcement, but I, but I'm, you know, it's kind of broadly, broadly used term, I think. And, and that, that has over the years led to a lot of like arbitrary decisions on what constitutes proper cause and all that. arbitrary. I know. I love that word, man. I know, but that, that therein lies the problem on this. Right. Isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Cause that this case, I was actually surprised to see that. Um, I mean, there's over 80 amicus briefs filed and a lot of those come from, uh, you know, like, like black gun owners of America. And, and so, um, you know, minority groups in America who have been disenfranchised in the past also were not getting um, these uh, licenses to uh, to carry a firearm. So it was really kind of like, oh, this is just another way that they're being discriminated against. Right. Well, you don't uh, really need a need because, well, right, you're not white. 
yeah i mean essentially right like oh what do you have to be scared of you know what i mean like it's just kind of it's silly and it's uh all right yeah so it makes no sense no right right so um what the court said was so that why, why did the, why did this uh person want a license yeah so he well, i mean he was a recent crime victim uh lived in a lower income high crime rate area and um you know wanted it for his safety and they said that's not enough that's not proper cause hmm. and that to me i mean I, I so i i agree i agree with this with a regulation um, where you have to state a proper cause and that's there's no real definition of what that is that's what the courts deemed a shall issue shall issue permit um so we shall issue one if you can prove to us that you deserve it kind of deal right right as opposed to a may issue um like you may get a gun license if you pass a background check but the court basically said proper cause should be very widely interpreted right basically if you well, say, they said the requirement to show proper cause is unconstitutional oh general, right so oh, okay. the, the the law that said again i didn't read mr harris case yeah, yeah, he just told me to read it. Um, <laughs> uh, so what did I do? I went to Wikipedia and YouTube. I, I think I provided you the link to Wikipedia, brother. Yes, you did. I didn't even do that much work. So, but it is interesting because I was like, what is this shall issue and what is this may issue? And that, to me, is kind of the crux of the argument. Because even the majority says, we're not saying you cannot regulate gun gun ownership in the United States. What it's saying is um I think I got that backwards. Shall issue the majority the majority rule that states are allowed to enforce shall issue permitting where applicants for concealed carry permits must satisfy certain objective criteria such as passing a background check. But may issue systems that use arbitrary evaluations uh, of need made by local authorities are unconstitutional. So it was it was the shall issue is not unconstitutional. The may issue uh, criteria is unconstitutional. Right. Well, and that kind of makes sense. We can understand you have to pass if you want a license to carry. Right. Right. So in New York, that would be the rule, at least in New York City at this point. It was in Texas up until a few years ago. You had to pass a background check. You had to take gun safety courses. You had to pass a test. And then you could, with a license, carry a weapon with you basically most places unless it was restricted for other reasons. Yeah. Uh, and this is, are you talking about in New York? Yeah, but that's the way it was in Texas. Sure. Uh, you know, like but five or six years ago. Think about all that. But then, so you've gotten the green light from all that stuff, but then it goes to a bureaucrat. And they have to evaluate it, at, at, like give it another wash to see if you actually have demonstrated proper cause, right? The, but I think the reasoning that, um, well, the foundation for the later cases comes next. So usually uh, there's there's been like, um, uh, you know, different standards that federal courts can use when evaluating the constitutionality of, uh, of a law of regulation. Um, either the intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny, right? Right. And so I am not a constitutional scholar, and this may surprise a lot of you out there. But I'm not going to get I into am in shock and all right this moment. I'm not going to get into the difference 
between the two. But Second Amendment law has usually been um, evaluated under an intermediate scrutiny. Okay. Um, we should have William Biggs back on the show. He can definitely school us Oh, he us can definitely define both those things. What Justice Thomas, who is the um, who who is the author of the majority opinion, says, no, we're not evaluating it on intermediate or strict scrutiny. This is we're not tr- we're not evaluating it on a different level than any other um, amendment to the to the Constitution. He says that. Um, the judiciary does doesn't need to evaluate the regulation, um, not in consideration of the public good, but in light of the historical tradition of firearm regulation, which is a phrase that he penned. Several of these cases have been successfully returned. Um, I'm sorry, several cases it states had successfully overturned longstanding regulations due to the regulations um, not being of historic tradition. And so think of that, right? Because the concern now is. Our lower level federal courts, maybe even our state courts, are going to have to determine it, what the framers' intent was back in the 18th century and apply that to, you know, technology and life and, and you know, everything that we have now in the 21st century, um, which there's no way that they could have imagined uh all of the technology and everything else that we that we enjoy today. So I, you know, that this is that is the reason um, I think for a lot of the uh, the cases going forward. So, Mr. Decker, um, when we talk about the, you know, this this foundation, this new foundation for all these cases, how like how has it affected you know, the state of the law here in Texas. Okay, so, uh, Mr. Harith, in a family law case, not yeah. a family law, a family violence case, we don't do okay. family law. Right. I don't want to do family law. You don't want to do family law. Please, God, don't make me. Um, yes. I don't want to fight over the salt shaker or the dog or how much the kid is worth. Um, no. Uh, Agreed. But family violence cases, we get all the time. And remember, family violence, ladies and gentlemen, is... Obviously, a spouse, child, parent, anyone you you live with, someone you date, who you've had a romantic relationship with, who you have a child with. I don't know how you have a child without having a romantic relationship, but I guess they're saying that one-minute hookup uh, might be enough because you now have a trailing effect. Um, so family violence is much broader than what most of us consider most of us right you know we the obvious is uh husband hits wife but it's much broader than that the family violence finding can can be uh college roommates yeah they've lived together for six months that's all they're living together but they get in a fight it's family Family violence violence. what happens upon arrest they get a magistration order what is what is right what one yeah typically yeah so probably bond conditions yeah, yeah. Um, maybe an emergency protective order. Oh yeah. Um, but some sometimes I mean, not at the request of the of the injured party. Right. Just the judge, the magistrate. Not even. So not even. We're not going to say district court judge or or county judge. A magistrate. Right. Or at the at the instigation 
of the arresting officer. Right. Yes. And I, that's what I've seen it most often is the arresting officer has requested the protective order. And like after the, you know, after the client bonds out, they're like, what do you, what? Nobody, everybody wants, you know, everybody reunited. It, it just seems, okay. Anyways, I digress. Right. So in that protective order, what's one of the things that's often in it? Oh, definitely a restriction on your ability to own, possess, transport firearms and ammunition. Right. So there's also a mere federal law on that. Okay. And so that brings us to a case out of the, that originated in Arlington, Texas. So we have the state, we have the, the normal state stuff that you and I deal with, but you're telling me there's a federal code that is kind of the same restriction. Yes. Okay. That's right. So, um, 18 USC section 922 G8. That is me just telling you exactly where it goes. Yeah. Um, Follow along at home. Follow along at home. (laughs) That provides that it shall be unlawful for any person who is subject to a court order where they received notice and were aware that there could be a hearing, restrains a person from harassing, stalking, threatening an intimate partner of such a person or a child of an intimate partner of such a person or engaging in conduct that would put that person in in reasonable fear of bodily injury to them or to the child, uh, includes a finding that such a person represents a credible threat of physical safety to the intimate partner or child. Again, this is your typical, this is not roommate, this is parent of a child um uh right uh and that order explicitly prohibits the use attempted use threatened use of physical force against such intimate person or child would reasonably expect to cause bodily injury and it prohibits them to possess in affecting commerce any firearm or ammunition well you can't possess a firearm in without affecting commerce at this point right right there's you'd have to basically build it on your own and even then they could say well you got the metal and the metal didn't all originate in the state of texas you know now you can print guns (sighs) so right right we're about to deal with some pretty terrifying stuff so (laughs) we'll we'll hold on to that thought thank (laughs) you for just making me more nervous (laughs) um and uh mr rahami uh was indicted by a grand jury and tried to say that this was unconstitutional. Um, and the district court denied that motion. He pled guilty. Okay. Right. Because have you, we've all seen these a dozen times. Yes. Have you ever thought that's unconstitutional? I have not. Basically, I look at it and when people go, well, you know, because it's you have that person in your office. Why can they say I can't have a gun? And I'm like, look, it's not that you're a bad person. It's that the single most common trait in a mass shooting outside of white male looking at you, Mr. Harris. um, Whoa. (laughs) Is a previous finding of family violence. I mean, you know, the it is, statistically speaking, the most dangerous call that a police officer can get called out on. Now, right. I have my own opinion on, um, you, you know, the their zero tolerance approach to these kind of cases and all that. But I do recognize that whenever you're dealing with 
marital relations, anybody you live with, close familial relations or whatever, you know, things are a bit more heightened, can be heated, can be heated, right? Um, so, so there's a reason why these things have been put in. And in this case, that went before the Fifth Circuit, they said, we think that, that this is a, this is a admirable law. It protects yeah. that the goal is to protect people who would be vulnerable to violence, especially at the hand of a of a firearm. Okay. I feel like there's a butt coming. Yeah, there is a big old butt. And Mr. Harris kind of he, he referred to it just a few minutes ago, but I'm gonna read it again. Um because it is so so important. Um and and this is a long opinion, and I read the whole thing, and and uh, it's going to take me a minute to find some of these. So, the the new rule says, put another way, the government must the government must affirmatively prove that its firearm regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. In other words. It has to be something that historically the government would have said, no, you can't possess a firearm. Now, to boil this whole case down, basically they argue, historically, felons, from the very beginning of, uh, of, our, of our nation, felt persons who had been found guilty of, be of a felon were not allowed to possess firearms. Right. You know, we all know a felon can't possess a firearm. They said... Uh, Persons who had who had committed treason, persons who had attempted, uh, you know, other things that may not necessarily, but there there were there were, but you had to be adjudicated, you had to have a conviction. Yeah. But they said we the people had a right to bear arms. Right. And, and basically, this whole case boils down to we the people have a right to bear arms until you have been proven to be a felon or a threat and that a protective order is not, especially one that's just granted because you were arrested on a family's violence, family violence finding is not enough. That, that decision that's often made at three o'clock in the morning by a magistrate isn't enough. So, so they recognize, yeah, say that you've committed a felony a federal felony by violating that protective order by having a firearm. And this guy's walking around Arlington discharging his weapon like eight times over the course of like seven days, you know, shooting it in the air, shooting it at a building. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Harris eyes are huge. Wow. Yeah. They, they, they had him in lots of ways, but this was the quickest and easiest way. And the feds will move much faster than the state court. So sometimes they'll come in and pick one of these up and go, we're going to wrap this guy up and just get him. Okay, so they the the court recognizes a historical tradition of not allowing felons to possess firearms, and they say that's fine. Okay, I, otherwise, I, I'm not real sure what they what like. I don't I don't understand how to define the historical tradition rule. Okay, so they obviously start with the Second Amendment. Simple, and it actually provides it. It actually says in the deal, simple enough. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay. All right. Um, and then 
uh, they go on to talk about the people a lot. Yeah. Right? The people have been interpreted throughout the Constitution as an unambiguously refer- reference to all members of the political community, not a unspecified subset. So sure. the people refer to a class of persons who are part of the national community who have otherwise developed sufficient connection with this country to be considered part of that community. And they cite previous uh, SCOTUS cases. Okay. So basically, if you're here yeah. and you're part of the community, you're part of the people. I got, I understand that. Okay. Um, and I, and I, and I get, uh, so I'm, you know, Andrew, I'm torn um, because in, in a lot of ways I feel like, you know, good for our clients, right? That they've not been proven anything. I mean, how many cases do we have where the facts come out after a case is filed? So after our clients are arrested and a case is filed, that none of this ever happened, that in fact the exact opposite happened or something else, right? Right. Or there's a great big difference. And again, let's let's go back to a family violence case. A family violence could be as simple as a class C ticket. Yeah. Right. Right. I. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, not uh, offensive contact, offensive right? Offensive contact in your home between right. you and your spouse. So no pain, just. Right. You did it to provoke me. You right. did it to piss me off one more time. Right. right. I called the cops. You got a ticket. There's a family violence finding in front of a municipal court. Yeah. Or a JP court. Right. Yeah. Right. But before. You go to court and have the finding on the record, they can do this EPO of no harmful contact, no weapons, right? Yeah. But again, this this could be somebody who would never, ever, ever point a firearm at anyone, but because there's this offensive contact or she pushed me and it hurt. A family yeah. violence with bodily injury. Sorry, that's not an injury. We'll talk about that another time. Right. right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm but they can be very hard, like heavy handed and very unfair to our clients who like are sitting there like, when can I defend? Like, how soon can I defend myself against these charges? You know, and unfortunately, it may be months that you're having to report in on pretrial supervision, have not have your second rights to own and possess a firearm. And, you know, like I that always to me is I didn't grow up with guns. So I'm like, yeah, you know, big whoop. You can't possess a firearm. Right. Like who, who really cares? I mean, I own firearms now right? and, um, it, you know, and, and it is what it is, but I had a client who was scheduled to go on a once in a lifetime hunting trip with his father. Right. And like, he couldn't go, could yeah. not go because can't of carry so, that gun. can't carry the gun. So, I mean, I guess he could have gone and just not enjoyed it, but they just ended up canceling the trip. I mean, like this can be, this is very important to a lot of people. Right. So they basically start with the conclusion that law-abiding responsible citizens uh should not be should should not have their their rights prohibited but they understand that there have been long-standing prohibitions including possession of firearms by felons, the mentally ill and uh laws preventing the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings. Okay? So they understand and they and again there's nothing in this that says you cannot regulate firearms. Right. But basically they're saying that that uh Rahimi doesn't fall in any of these categories at the time that he was charged. Because 
the strong presumption is, is that what's the presumption of someone accused of crime, Mr. Harris? Uh, in Texas or just like what it's supposed to be? It, no, yeah. yeah, um, yeah you are it, innocent it, unless proven guilty. Right. Um, uh, that he remains among the people at that point. Right. He has not been adjudicated. He's not been found guilty. Um, and that that would then fall outside of the well-rooted history of firearm regulation. I get um, it. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm on board with that. I'm on really? board with it. It kind of makes me nervous that, you know, if this falls, how, uh, how, how much other stuff's going to fall. We're running a little long, but, I, but, you know, the state then has a chance in their briefs to, uh, to say what the history has been. Right. Oh, yeah. Do you have, do you have that? I, I have some of the court's reaction. So the state goes back to the English militia of 1662, where officers of the crown seized all the arms of the custody and possessions of any person whom they judged dangerous to the peace of the kingdom. And basically the court said, uh, yeah, that was the king rounding up arms of people that uh, didn't like the king. Yeah. That didn't make them unlawful. That just makes them, you know, the opposing right. party. Right. We don't want whichever person wins the next election to be able to then and round up all the guns of the other person. Right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. exactly what the second amendment is supposed to be protecting us from. Um, they said that doesn't work. Um, uh, then they uh, talked about, you know, there was a time where there was loyalty and a loyalty status. And so if you weren't loyal or if you were considered unacceptable, uh, again, most of these were, uh, well before uh, the Second Amendment was put in place. And it says those aren't really, doesn't matter. So then when the Second Amendment is put in place, uh, it said that uh, all uh, a farriers, rioters, disturbers, or breakers of the peace, and as such shall ride and go armed offensively, that they shall have their weapons taken away. Um, and eventually that one falls shortly after uh, the Second Amendment comes into place. That's that, that's in the 1740s in uh, Second Amendment kind of eats it up and the law changes. Like it's not a case that they went, oh, well, we can't yeah. do that anymore. Um, so they all say this isn't, this isn't um, uh, relevant. So then we move to historical surety laws. Didn't even know this one existed, right? A surety law becomes closer and similarly relevant but basically, it was, I have a reason to think person X is a threat to me. I don't get to take away his right to bear arms, but he then has to basically put up a surety. He has to put up a bond on my, basically, he gets to take out life insurance on me. Huh. Right? So, uh, lessens my willingness to shoot you if I've had to pay a duty to, <laughs> if you die by so that's historically, that's what people would have to do. Like, Hey man, I'm going to, I'm going to put this money down just to ensure you that I'm not coming after you. Yeah. So that way I can keep carrying my gun. Wow. Okay. That's I, interesting. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but it, but they said, but that doesn't prohibit the carrying of gun in public, much less possession as long as the offender posted the surety. Yeah. Interesting. I think that ought to be one of the requirements for a license to carry. You have a surety on the life of anyone you might shoot. That would be uh, that would be something. Yeah. So they say that one doesn't fit. Um, 
But the one that truly disturbed me, and I mark it as scary in my side note, uh, and I passed over because that one, the surety comes later, uh, is the government, ladies and gentlemen, the yep. government in trying to say that this is this is a constitutional uh, law points to several laws in the colonies and states that disarmed persons considered to be dangerous, specifically including those unwilling to take an oath of allegiance. Okay. Well, I don't have to swear allegiance to the United States to be part of the people who carry right. a gun. Slaves and Native Americans. Uh, problematic. Yeah, so basically the U.S. government, because that's who's, who the government is in this paper. Right. The attorney for the U.S. government said, well, we used to take guns from slaves and Native Americans. And the court responds, uh, these laws disarm persons not based on uh, these laws disarm persons thought to pose a threat to security of the state due to their perceived lack of loyalty or status. Right. That's not what we're dealing with. Um, but we would question the threshold level, whether the state and constitutional laws uh, of disloyalty and acceptable persons represent tenable analogs to this law, basically. And then they also kind of go, uh, and disarming of slaves and Native Americans and disloyal people may have been targeted at groups excluded from the political community at the time that they would have been called the people. Right. Yeah. Basically, the government said, well, you know, we used to be racist, so we can do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, Ooh, man. Which is exactly what your case talked about. Yeah, it did. The government, in that in that case, it was a state government, was saying, well, you know, you're black. You're more likely to commit a crime. We're not going to let you carry a gun. Right. And the government literally says, well, you know, we used to do this to black people, so we should be able to do it to these people. And I was like, that is terrifying that someone in the government put this into a brief yeah you enough want that you the, want historical court... tradition look at uh yeah right i mean it, it does yeah it truly it i, I in the side note scary <laughs> well uh it is scary and i and you know like as a person i think the ramifications if you know when this is because it's unconstitutional are kind of scary to me you know personally but as a defense attorney, I'm happy that, you know, my clients are not going to be, um, yeah, yeah. You restricted unconstitutionally. Ironically, you know, we're now going to be allowed to carry guns more freely, but you can't read children's books to children while dressed in drag. Well, this is the part of the show y'all where we're going to, we're going <laughs> to melt. We're going to, we're just going to like dip our toe into like personal opinion. Um, sorry. I just find the, I find, I find these things ironic. Right. It, it is there is some like it is a bit ludicrous. Um, but you know, hey, that's politics, right? And that they've and, always politics have always been ludicrous. Yes, yeah. It, I mean, it, it really has. Um, you know, I, I if you want like nobility and honor, I, I just don't think you look to the uh, political arena to find it. I I think. For those things, you have to look more often to individuals, to individuals, and honestly, like to courts of law. One would hope. One I mean, would one hope, we, hope we, right? We know the courts of law have, have often. Jason Niehaus says, "Hey, uh, you know, um, the ju judicial uh, bench in our state is not a meritocracy, but I still think that um, I still think, at least for the judges that we appear in front of, they really try to do the right thing." Sure.
for the most part. Yeah, no, I think they do too. And it's not an easy deal. It's and, not an easy deal. You know, I think there's a lot of nobility in what we do. Honor. And what yeah. I do anyways. Well, yeah. You... <laughs> so anyway, it, it, it's... The... I think that we're going to have some grounds to question lots of laws um, in terms of, well, the unlawful carrying of a weapon, right? How is it unlawful to have a weapon in a DWI if... Um, uh, yeah, there's been no historical tradition of such. Right. And they haven't been adjudicated as someone who shouldn't have a weapon. Right. I mean, there, even yeah. that there, there, there could be some grounds definitely on the protective orders, definitely on some other things. Now, once you're found guilty, questions become different, but right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, your defenders, you're going to have some grounds that are ripe for our easing some questions that we have not raised since 1911. Yeah. Certainly. And possibly even longer. Uh, but remember, the U.S. Constitution does give the state legislature the right to uh, curb the use and the possession of weapons for the public safety. That's the Texas Constitution. Well, fantastic. Just want you to remember that. Anything else from you, Mr. Harris? I don't think so. <laughs> Until we meet again. Until we meet again, y'all be good. Good.